And I want to welcome everybody to this evening's Mallard Report. I'm so excited. I've, I've been talking with our guest for a few minutes here, and we're going to talk about a lot of exciting things and a lot of interesting things. But before we do, i got to remind everybody, the views and opinions of the Mallard Report are those of the host and guests and their views and opinions. They do not represent any sponsor or affiliate anybody else. My guest tonight is um, Dr. Gerald Gold Gold Haber. I said it right to you a minute ago, and then I kind of I stumbled over it. Did I do okay this time? You did just fine, Jim. And the, the, the warnings, Doctor, you've been at this uh, warning people in all sorts of court and all sorts of other things for over 40 years. What made, take me back 40-some years ago, what got you What got you started? Well, a friend of mine, I had written the first book in the field of communication back in the day, and a friend of mine teaching at the University of uh, Texas called me up and he said, you want to help me out in a lawsuit down here? I said, friend, I've only used a lawyer for a will and a traffic ticket. <laughs> anyway, I ended up in a lawsuit when a refinery had blown up. They needed an expert to talk about how uh, the warnings were bad or good, depending on what side of the case you were, because several people were killed when the explosion occurred at the oil refinery. And uh, it turned out there were 100 lawyers involved in the case when I was deposed. So uh, apparently I must have done well, even though many of them were opposite what I was saying. For the next 10 years, I was commuting from New York to Texas, Houston, San Antonio, Dallas. So that's what got started. Uh, first lawsuit in the state of Texas, and for 10 years, I got to be an expert in Texas barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of travel, back and forth, back and forth. You wouldn't do it today, would you? I mean, uh, get stuck on an airplane of, uh, with everybody coughing and sneezing, even with a mask. But back then, travel was safe. You could get on a plane and get where we had to go. But that's how it all started. It actually, uh, on a lark, I wasn't planning to have a career in warnings and safety. I'd done research in the area and uh, written some articles on it, but never thought it would evolve into a career as an expert and as an advisor to corporations, but that's what happened. That is, that's something. So how, I mean, how did you get, I mean, you said whatever was the plan, so I'm sure somebody said, suggested it multiple times before it stuck, because I, I imagine the first person you kind of laughed at. Yeah, well, I went down to the case, and I went down to the uh, Texas refinery to just inspect it and see if I could help in my area of communication. I didn't even use the word warning. They wanted to know if the communications were adequate. And I'd written the first book in the country on this field of how organizations communicate, so they brought me down there for that expertise. I wasn't even using the word warnings at the time. But then as the uh, case evolved, it became obvious that they were talking about safety information, information that people needed to prevent injury or death. And then uh, as the cases evolved over the next five or six years, lawyers were calling me up who were in that room when I was being deposed or at the trial, and they said, we heard you talk and we have some other cases we want to talk to you about. So it sort of grew from there. And... Um, I got to be very interested. If this was a field, I wanted to know what the research was because I'm an academic and a researcher first and foremost. Turned out there was very little literature, and I wanted to know what made up a good warning. So in absence of a lot of literature, I designed several studies and uh, collected a lot of data, published a lot of research in scientific journals, and became known early on as the warnings doctor, the guy who collected data and didn't just offer opinions, but offered those opinions 
based on scientific evidence. So I've got to I've got to tell you, we're here to talk about Murder Inc., the unregulated industry that kill, kills or injured thousands of Americans every year, and what you can do about it, which is a phenomenal, but I, I don't want to say scary phenomenal book, but. It's not your typical horror book, so to speak. I mean, there's no zombies or monsters. Well, I won't say there's no monsters in here. Uh, <laughs> you're going to have to twist well, that one a little friend, bit. Well, my friend, the economist Paul Krugman, whom I know, uh, he just wrote a book about zombies and economics. <laughs> and I would borrow from his own language. There are zombies in our life, and they are the corporations that make virtually any product that we buy or use. And we think of these products as our friends because of the marketing and advertising and the branding that's been used. They're not our friends. If they were our friends, they'd say, hey, this is a good product, but it may have some dangers that you need to be aware of. The fact is that our, that our corporations today are unhinged, and they are producing great products but sometimes those products have risks and dangers associated with them, and we need to know what they are. That's called telling the truth. We call it in my book, principled disclosure. That is telling the truth because it's the right thing to do. Sadly, corporations think that that's anti-profit. They've placed their profits over our safety by denying us the information we need to use products safely. I'm not here to say don't buy products. I'm here to say make informed choices. And when you do choose to buy it with the risks, you do so knowing what the risks are up front. And we say, well, all right, Jerry, the government will look after us. They'll hold those corporations to task and make them tell us the truth about their products. Not so fast, especially this day and age with the current administration on a deregulatory frenzy. Corporations, without the current administration even involved, were conflicted. What do I mean? I mean that if you look, and I did this as a scientist, my team collected the data, and we determined that since the creation of time, when these agencies like the NHTSA and OSHA, CDC, FDA, it's an alphabet soup, all these agencies that are supposed to look out for our safety and interests, I went to the beginning of when these were first created and followed it right to today and determined that the commissioners, the leaders of these organizations, 68% of them from the beginning either came from or went to the very corporations they were supposed to regulate. So they joined the government, the FDA, one of the more uh, illustrious examples, I was going to say corrupt examples, <laughs> of this principle of revolving door. The FDA commission, it doesn't matter who the president is, Democrat, Republican, Congress always supports these nominees, 99 to nothing, and they're, uh, uh, they go along because their leaders say, hey, who better to run this regulatory agency than someone who comes from the very industry? And the American public goes, yeah, sure. But then you realize this is the most corrupt, uh, conflicted possibility you can think of. The fox, as I say in my book, is not in the hen house. The fox ate the hen house. So I, I know you've probably tired of telling this story, but I, I kind of teased it in promotions that I was doing today about what the value of life is. And I, I believe it was early in the book, maybe even the foreword of the book, where you talk about Ford and the Pint or the. Um, uh, which which one was it? The one that was exploding? The Ford Pinto. Yeah, so I, was gonna, I started to say Pinto, and then I backed off at the last second. I should have just trusted my gut on that. 
Could you could you could you retell that story real quick? Because I, I think that kind of sets this whole conversation up where we're headed. Absolutely. Back in the day when Lee Iacocca, who's a household name, he just passed away a year or two ago. He's ninety six years old, I believe. Lee Iacocca ran Ford and then he ran Chrysler. And the Ford Pinto was developed by Iacocca because Ford was getting creamed in the small car market, the compact car industry. So they came up with the Pinto. They even decided to put the engine in the rear, in the trunk. Slight problem, it exploded and killed a lot of people. Well, it turns out there was an $11 part that could have fixed the exploding trunks that killed a lot of people in the Ford Pinto. Iacocca chose not to do it because he determined that the $11 a car, if you multiplied it times 12.5 million cars, it would have cost Ford about $140 million. And then he decided, well, how many people died or were seriously injured? Let's get a dollar value on that. Well, he was too shrewd and too crafty a marketer, and uh, he, so he didn't want to come up with a number of how much money our lives are worth. So he convinced NHTSA, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, whose responsibility is to regulate all things cars and trucks, he convinced them, and I say convince them, to come up with a dollar value. And NHTSA obliged, again, the revolving door, and NHTSA, who's supposed to regulate Iacocca in the auto industry, said, sure, we'll give you a value. And according to NHTSA, Jim, you and I are worth 200000 bucks, alive and dead, or if we seriously get injured, we're worth 67000 This is according to the U.S. government, the National Highway Traffic Safety. So what Iacocca did was he multiplied the 200000 bucks that our lives are worth times 180, which at the time was the number of, of dead people from the exploding Pintos, and he came up with, and then he multiplied 67 grand times the, it turned out it was another 180 who were seriously injured. He came up with a total of about 50 million bucks. That's what he would he claims we would have saved. However, he remember he would have spent 140 million to save, to fix it. So, voila! It would cost three times the savings to fix it. So Ford, according to itself, made the wise business decision to save a lot of money. And that, my friends, is called the cost-benefit analysis that Harvard University's business school will not teach you. That, my friend, is probably the... What's the word I'm looking for? Mm, Well, try try corrupt, try cynical... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Try disingenuous. Uh, and let me help you out. Once Iacocca got away with this, the rest of the industry came panting like a bunch of hungry wolf dogs to NHTSA. And they said, me too, me too. We're not going to fix this. We're gonna, we've done the cost-benefits analysis. So this is probably the most cynical use of math I've ever seen in my career. And uh, this is uh, sadly the state of corporate America today. Nothing's changed in 50 years. Companies calculate what it will cost to fix problems versus what the benefits and savings will be. Profit over safety. Their profit over our safety. So spin it forward. What's the most recent example of something that we probably all would know that this kind of decision-making has factored in? 
well, let's stay in the auto industry. And that's not the only, I'm talking about every industry, but since we were talking about Ford Pintos, we had a record year two years ago. General Motors had its ignition key problem where the, it got jammed and airbags wouldn't work and brakes wouldn't work. Toyota, the same year, had the sticky gas pedal problem. You push your foot down the gas pedal, and the brakes wouldn't work, and the gas pedal wouldn't come up, and people were horrified as they were they were killed while they were driving. The car kept accelerating. Same year, Takata came up. This is the world's largest manufacturer of airbags. Slight problem in in uh, humid and hot states like Louisiana and Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, down the south. The uh, accelerant that was supposed to in- initiate the explosion for the airbag prematurely would go off and kill people. Shards of metal would come out. All three of these examples the industry knew about before they happened. In Takata's case, the uh, head of Takata, whose name was Takada, even though Takada makes most of the airbags in the world, he came up with a study. His engineers predicted this 10 years before the first injury or death. The president told them, bury it. And for 10 years, they buried it while hundreds of people were injured or killed until the engineers got religion and told the New York Times, and then it all came out and the executives were put in jail and so on. That's an egregious uh, example. Volkswagen, another one, they conned the EPA by rigging the emissions tests on their cars. Heads rolled there, too. And and by the way, with GM and Toyota, nobody went to jail. If you or I had done, let's say you wanted to knock off your producer, and we, you and I decide we're going to kill this guy, we decide we're going to tape his uh, gas pedal down, but we're not very good crooks, so we get caught. And what are we going to get, depending on what state we're in? We could get the death penalty or life in jail, because we're bad crooks. Well, that's exactly what Toyota did. Instead of anybody going to jail or getting the death penalty, which is why I call my book Murder, Inc., they got a fine of a billion dollars. It seems that if a company screws up, the government, the U.S. government, says, give us a billion and we'll move on. Same thing happened with GM with their, with their ignition problem case the same year. Gave us a billion bucks and they just moved right on. So I'm going to ask you about a very specific product because it's kind of infamous and it'll be great in the search tags later. Honestly, that's why I'm asking you about this because you've probably talked about this. It's the Tide Pods. Now, is that user end user problem or is that a Tide problem because it looked like candy? Which product? I'm sorry, say it again. The, the Tide Pods, the ones that all the kids were eating 10 years ago or so? The... Uh, the uh, washer, washing machine soap that looked like candy. Oh, I'm sorry, I couldn't. I thought you said iPod. We had a bad connection <laughs> here. Uh, this came out of a television show on uh, MTV where people took serious uh, situations and, and they acted like jerks on television, young young males, typically teenage to early 20s. And one of those involved eating these Tide, uh, or I shouldn't say the name Tide, but it, was, it started with Tide and it went on to other laundry detergents where they would actually eat these things. And then it became known as the candy to teenagers and youngsters. And the parents weren't adequately warned to keep this away from their kids. And uh, most of the time that parents claim, well, we wouldn't have thought of this. Well, that's the reason. There wasn't a warning about it. They made a product. We call this in the legal field an attractive nuisance. 
We used to put on uh, products that were poisonous, the Mr. Yuck sign. You may remember that. And uh, the poison symbol was used as a, as a uh, literary signal that this is a dangerous product. We don't do too much of that today. And the industry, when they create these so-called convenient products that do carry risks, for example, by analogy, this detergent product was actually killing people. Uh, you could uh, put, by analogy, a swimming pool in your backyard and not put a fence up. Now, most states have laws that you have to have a fence up. If you didn't have a fence up and some neighboring kid jumped into the pool and drowned or dived in and became a quadriplegia, you could be sued under the law of having an attractive nuisance. You attracted people. That's where the Tide product comes in. It's an attractive nuisance. Uh, this dates back to when candied cigarettes were around. Uh, back in the 1920s, and I, I wasn't around the 20s, but I was around the 50s, and I remember candied cigarettes vividly, and uh, it was a predecessor to eating, once you ate the candied cigarettes, and they looked like Lucky, lucky Strikes, actually, and then you would uh, graduate to the real deal. That was the intent. Today, we, we used to have the same thing with mentholated cigarettes. The reason the FDA just banned them, finally, is because, and I think the ban's supposed to go into effect this current year, coming year in 21, is because mentholated cigarettes were an attractive nuisance, that term again. In other words, kids would think it's a candy-like product, and the industry was only too happy to oblige because they used characters that would attract kids to their product. And uh, sort of remember Smokey the Bear, uh, cartoon characters saying, you know, in this case it was a good symbol, uh, don't start a forest fire. Well, the industry, in this case tobacco, used figures, cartoon figures, to attract kids. And they used candy cigarettes to attract kids. And Tide used a, a product that actually does look like cotton candy. Yeah, it's just remarkable. And then, but I mean, honestly, how. You said parents weren't aware of the the um, desire, but I mean, it, it's it. Is there any? Because I'm sitting here, I see I see the pictures of it. And go, I know it's laundry soap, and I know that's bad. Why why has this come to news to some other people that this might be a problem? Or is that, just because, is that because I is that just because I think too much? <laughs> no, it's because the American public is being led by marketing techniques that are intended to tell you we're our friends. And uh, the most egregious of this marketing is targeting minorities and people of lower income. Uh, I was on uh, national radio recently where I was hosted by one of the leading black broadcasters in the United States, and he was on my side. He said the same thing. He said, listen, our, the churches and the choir events and sporting events in minority communities were being sponsored by McDonald's with their greasy hamburgers and their fries and uh, sugary drinks, all the bad junk food that was contributing. You know, we're wondering today in the environment of COVID why we have comorbidities so high in people of color's community. It's obvious. They have higher conditions of high blood pressure, uh, overweight, diabetes, uh, cancer. Why? Because their diets are horrendous. This all ties into income, job deprivation, the systemic racism in society, and 
the icing on the cake is corporate marketing targeting these very audiences with, in this case, foods that aren't good for them. I was at an event in Harlem in New York a few months ago, and that event was sponsored by Coca-Cola and McDonald's. <laughs> now, you couldn't ask for two of the worst companies in the United States as far as nutrition goes. The absence thereof, Coca-Cola, one Coke, your, your listeners may not know this. I, I was just talking to uh, the uh, one of the doormen in my building. His wife is a medical supervising nurse in a major hospital in the United States at Mount Sinai. And this woman's first name is Hannah. And Hannah read my book, and she said to her husband, who told me this tonight, I said, I'm going to use this on Jim Mallard's show, that... She did not know. This is the head supervising nurse at a major United States hospital. She said she didn't know that a Coke had 48 grams of sugar in it, or an average Coke, and that meant 12 teaspoons of sugar. And she drank a Coke a day and didn't realize that, A, sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine, and, B, drinking one Coke a day increases your chances of a cardiovascular event by 35%. In other words, you're one-third more likely to have a heart attack or some or a stroke if you drink a soft drink, sugary drink a day. And Coke is not the winner. The winner is Mountain Dew. They have 67 grams. The trouble is, you and I don't know what grams means. Only 5% of America speaks metric, meaning we might as well speak Greek. Sugar industry, soft drinks, beverages, and so on, they know that. That's why they communicate in Greek, grams, metric. They know you don't understand it. Simple formula, by the way, divide by four, divide four into grams and you come up with teaspoons. And everybody's grandmother cooked their cakes and said, hey, honey, put in two teaspoons of this. My grandmother said a bissel meant a teaspoon. So you put in, we all know what a teaspoon is. Imagine how many people would stop drinking Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, and Mountain Dew if instead of saying 48 grams, it said 12 teaspoons of sugar in one can of Coke. I don't think very many. This is a doctor, a supervising nurse of a major hospital, and didn't know this. And that's the whole point of my book. I want people to read it and to walk away saying, my goodness, I didn't know that. That could have happened to me. And that's why corporate America knows this. They know what they're doing. They're targeting certain audiences with, in this case, I'm talking about the food industry, before it was the auto industry, with products they know can hurt them. And the idea is to addict people to these products and then to add insult to injury, not warn them, principal disclosure, not warn them about those very risks. So I'm sitting here, and I'm, there's a whole bunch of things running through my head, and I look at the time, and I'm like, oh, no, we're not going to get to all of them anyways, which is fine. I'm just sitting here going, so much, I second the Coca-Cola thing. All the sugar, and of course then you go back to the original Coke and, you know, that whole joke and that whole situation. And you wonder how it just becomes generational, right? It just becomes ingrained into the people's cultures and, and families. It just scares me. Well, it should scare you, and it should scare everyone. And people need to be aware that they're killing themselves. We have 25 million diabetics and 80 million pre-diabetics. That's a third of the country is pre-diabetic or diabetic in the United States. And that that results in 10% of all deaths every year. 
every year, 250,000 people die from diabetes, which is directly linked to sugary beverages that we drink. 20% of children today are obese. 20%, 40% of children today are overweight. That's almost two-thirds of the country's children are either obese or overweight. The situation is critical. It's actually a national scandal. And we are sitting back and contributing to it while corporate America is contributing to these deaths by marketing and peddling these horrendous products without telling us. I, I have argued to the FDA, and many times I've sent them letters, appeared at hearings, and I've argued that they should have a bright warning on every single soft drink, sugary drink beverage, whether it's Gatorade, Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew is the winner, by the way. 67 grams of sugar. That's 17 teaspoons in one can. When I give a speech, I go around the country with a teaspoon and a bag of sugar in a cup of coffee. I don't drink coffee, but I, I tell the audience, let's go and have some sugar in our coffee. By the time I get to five or six, everybody's going groaning. And I go up to 17, and they say, you're crazy. Nobody would do that. And I hold up a can of Mountain Dew, and half the audience is drinking Mountain Dew. And they are, are, are yelling about coffee with sugar, but that's what Mountain Dew has. Industry is doing this to us and not telling us. I'm not here to say don't drink Coke, okay? That woman, Hannah, who's a nurse, if she wants to keep drinking it, fine. I just want her to make that choice with information. I call that informed choice. My tagline has always been, the more informed you are, the safer you'll be. But I can't make those decisions for you, Jim. I can only, as the warnings doctor, give you the prescriptions to help you lead a safer life in a more dangerous world. But I can't make you fill that prescription. That's up to you, and that's America, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is forcing people to make decisions about their health without the information that they need to hopefully make a better decision. I can't tell you what to do, but I sure as hell urge industry and make government enforce this if they follow the rules that I've set out in my book to to help you make a more informed to show and more informed decisions, more informed choices about your life. So were you reading my notes while you were giving that answer because the next thing on my list and I I kind of have it shifting together right at this moment as I'm talking to you. You said prescriptions and I'm thinking, well these products, these beverages, the fast food, I mean all these products in the industry cause these medical conditions and medical con- medical field has their own set of um, problems that goes with that and it just seems to kind of feed off of each other well of course I mean listen to me very carefully this is a planned uh, operation if you are in the sugar and food industry addicting people to products that could kill them the best thing you can do is in the industry is to have a collaborator who says well wait a minute I can protect you from your diabetes and from your own stupidity and your addictions I will sell you the latest drugs and so the big pharma comes in, and big pharma is making most money per capita of any industry, and they've got a pill for everything. Now, let me say something about big pharma. I have a whole chapter on that in my book, and the most 
disinge- and this is where the FDA, and I'll illustrate what I meant by the revolving door. The FDA is supposed to regulate the food and drug industry. That's what it stands for, FDA, Food and Drug Administration. And they're supposed to regulate the pharmaceutical industry's advertising. Back in the day, uh, they used to engage, they, pharma, used to hire doctors, pay them actual $50,000 to give speeches to other doctors peddling their drugs. It's like a a shill in a poker game. The house has their own players racking the game up for you, except you don't know who the shill is. In this case, you have a doctor giving a speech to other doctors. He's on the payroll. Well, Congress outlawed that. So now the pharmaceutical industry has no choice but to go directly to consumer. We call it DTC, direct-to-consumer advertising. So that's why you see on television today all these ads. Every hour, you'll see half the advertising or more from the pharmaceutical industry. I'm a commentator at CNN, and over half of the advertising revenues they get are from Big Pharma, which is why they won't let me talk on the air probably about how bad Big Pharma is. But the point I'm making is those ads, if you watch them, what do they all have in common? And by my background, the FDA mandates that if you advertise direct to consumers, you've got to warn them. The FDA says you have to tell them what the risks are. All right, so Big Pharma said, okay, we'll do that. Now, here's the deal. You put it on television. What is TV? It's a visual medium. It's all about pictures. So while they're telling you that this product could kill you, cut your feet off, and cause you an indigestion and ulcer and have a stroke, at the same time they're telling you all this bad stuff, they're showing beautiful men, beautiful women, gorgeous kids, grandma and grandpa throwing a football to their grandchild while big while the dog is barking gently in the midst and they're all in a beautiful park with the sun shining and the rainbows in the distance. So in other words, this is visual distraction. The industry is telling you, on the one hand, verbally, the product may kill you. At the same time, grandma is catching a football from her 12-year-old and running with the football in Central Park. Obviously, nobody's paying attention to the warnings. The FDA knows that. They approved these ads. I did a test, and it's in my book. I tested whether people hear it on radio or watch it on TV, and we asked them who, who would remember the warnings. People who heard it on radio remembered them. The people who watched it on TV didn't. Case closed. Television is a distraction visually from the message. The industry knows it. The FDA knows it. The FDA lets the industry get away with it. So the bottom line is you and I are making uninformed choices when we ask our doctor if, and you fill in the drug, is right for us. We're asking our doctors, all right, but we're asking them the wrong question. What we should say is, Doc, can this drug kill me? (laughs) Well, I was sitting here thinking about those commercials are – I know this isn't the real condition, but we'll just go for the sake of this conversation because it's just about true. Hey, I have a hangnail. Ask your doctor if this pill is all right. It may cause your hair to fall out, your arm to fall off, and may kill you, but it'll treat your hangnail. What? The side effects are way worse than the problem I started with. But the problem is that you don't hear about the side effects because you're watching everybody on TV. If in the case of your hangnail, you're having somebody uh, probably doing a drill or 
run or, or painting as an artist or or maybe throwing a football something where your your hands are in use and with big smiles on everybody's face that's the visuals the pictures yes. television is about pictures the last thing the industry every one of these commercials and we've analyzed a hundred of them every one of them has the same format they start talking about this new wonder drug at the beginning in the middle, they give you the warnings, and at the end, they remind you about all the benefits. So you get benefits, warnings, benefits. And the high price of the benefits is at the beginning and at the end. And at the middle, when they're telling you the product could kill you, they go full visual. That's where you get the most beautiful women, the most handsome men, the gorgeous, cute kids, and the grandparents having fun frolicking in the park with the puppy. That all happens in the middle with emphasis on the visuals because that's when they're telling you the dangers. So technically, the industry is meeting the requirements of the FDA by telling the consumers the warnings. In reality, they're not warning the consumers. It's a deliberate uh, uh, decision to not warn and to allow the and the FDA turns away from it and that's scandalous. That is absolutely scandalous. And this is why I say conflicted revolving doors are preventing government from doing its job. But you hear about all these career politicians in the deep state and all this other stuff. So you're talking about revolving doors, and I, everybody, all my other well, not all my other guests come on here and say that people remain in their positions for too long. I'm confused. Not really. Well, here's I'll, the deal. Yeah. For <laughs> I want them to have, I've suggested, you want to get rid of the revolving door. And remember, I've got the data. 68% of all the commissioners and deputy commissioners since the time each agency was created, OSHA, FDA, CPSC, NHTSA, the Railroad Commission, again and on it goes. Every one of these agencies, EPA, their commissioners, their leaders, two-thirds of them either came from the industry they're supposed to regulate or they left and went back to the same industry, and they do it immediately. They don't stay very long in government. It's not that the regulators in charge stay there very long. They stay on the average of between one and three years, and then they go back. They don't want to stay in government too long. There is no deep state at the leadership level. They can't wait to get back to the industry because they've just changed the rules and set it up for them to now go back. Uh, in some cases, the revolving door hits them in the rear end, coming and going. I mean, I give you the most classic example in recent history, a guy named Robert Califf, whom Obama appointed, right? Everybody said, oh, Obama, great. He'll appoint a scientist to run the FDA. And he calls a press conference. I've picked Robert Califf. Robert Califf is the Duke University professor. He has a research think tank. And then the congressional hearings come on, and it turns out that Dr. Califf's research think tank was funded by billions of dollars of money to Duke University from Big Pharma, drumroll, Big Pharma. <laughs> Not only that, Dr. Califf, the so-called neutral scientist at the congressional hearings, is revealed outrageously, and Congress is really beating up on him on this. He owns his own consulting company as his side gig. You know, Jim, everybody's got a side gig, right? So he's got a side gig 
And uh, aside from from his Duke job, which isn't conflicted enough, right, with billions <laughs> from from the big pharma, he has a consulting company that he's in charge of. And in the writing, in the mission statement, I have a copy of it, and it's in my book. He has a, a mission statement that says, "We are here to help our clients, big pharma, uh, defeat and evade uh, pharmaceutical regulations with the FDA." This is the guy who's going to run the FDA. He's got a consulting company trying to avoid FDA regs. And after Congress beats up on him, you'd think the guy would go back to Duke and a shame he just approved 99 to nothing. <laughs> Everybody made a record. They said what they wanted to say, and then they voted the guy in. He didn't last long, and then he left after a year or two. But the, the point is, the, uh, the guy who's running the EPA today, he comes from the coal industry. I mean, can you imagine only in the United States would the guy in charge of clean air come from the most polluted industry in the history of the Industrial Revolution, the coal industry, and he's now running. This is why I say the fox isn't in the hen house. The fox is eating it. I have a solution. Put 10 years in. You can't join a regulatory agency from industry that's going to regulate that industry unless you put 10 years between the time you leave the company and the time you leave government and reverse it. You can't go back to industry for 10 years after you leave government to go back to the same industry you came from. Put a 10-year gap in, you'll eliminate the revolving door overnight, and then just do your jobs. That is remarkable. Oh, by the way, I guess I should start my campaign for the be, be the head of the Bureau of Alcohol, Firearms, and Tobacco, because that just sounds like a good old time. You'll have a wonderful time. <laughs> <laughs> Man, who put well, that the group tobacco to, who industry put, is who that, an example of, you know, we all thought that the tobacco industry would, had invented this so-called myth of having uh, scientists and doctors in white coats saying in the 1950s and 60s on when they used to have TV ads that uh, more doctors smoke cool with the Micronite <laughs> filter, you know, and so on and so forth. Actually, that that model of using scientists who are on the payroll of the industry, sort of like big pharma using doctors talking to doctors, as I said, shills. The industry model was created in the 1890s, 1900s by the sugar industry. They were the very first. They were the granddaddy of all to bring scientists in. And uh, I'm ashamed to say my daughter has a degree from Harvard Divinity School. And in her library, the Widener Library, they recently uncovered the famous sugar files. Apparently in the 1930s and 40s, Harvard professors in nutrition and whatever took money from the sugar industry and created a whole bunch of phony studies that said that sugar isn't a problem and it's the fat industry, not the sugar industry. Turns out those files were buried in the library. They've only recently come out, and now uh, it's been exposed that the sugar industry actually created this model of paying off scientists to say that their products are pretty good. I had, oh, good, this bad moment right here. I I was going to look this up earlier and didn't. We were talking about Monsanto and how all, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the corruption that went into getting that to market. And now you're, I mean, that's just flung that, what you were just saying to the T, but in 20, I mean, I guess the early 2000s, late 90s. Well, Roundup, as you may have been following, has been hit with some major uh, judgments in litigation. They just tried to settle with, I think they're, they're putting about a uh, multi-billion dollar uh, uh, 
settlement file fee and they try to get rid of all their litigation, uh, that's not going to fly because I happen to be involved in that litigation myself. <laughs> and um, there are a number of lawyers I'm working with who aren't going to be a part of that because the product itself is deadly. It's a classic failure to warn claim. I doubt that beer from Germany realized what they were getting into when they bought Monsanto. I call Monsanto the most evil company in the history of industry. ConAgra may be a close second because they deliberately create products that kill people by causing cancer and then they claim that they don't. And they, uh, But they recently agreed, in fact it was this last week, they agreed to pay $11 billion to settle. $11 billion. Now, you can imagine how much profit these companies make. When I say profit over safety, to them, $11 billion is like a dollar and a half for us for lunch money. So they're putting aside $11 billion to make their weed killer roundup cancer litigation go away. The claim is very simple. Uh, roundup is the leading uh, weed killer sold in the world. And... Uh, slight problem there's a chemical in it and that chemical causes cancer they claim it doesn't the chemical is known as glyphosate it's a nice word gly glyphosate it's the active ingredient in roundup the science is claimed that it causes non-hodgkin lymphoma uh, the industry claims it doesn't bear bought Monsanto and inherited all their litigation and they tried to make it go away and uh, they're claiming that it isn't a likely carcinogen and so on and so forth. And uh, the EPA said it wouldn't approve product labels. This is, this is what I mean by corruption. The EPA, our EPA, it's supposed to look out for us, has said under the Trump administration that it will not approve product labels that have the warning on it that the weed killer causes cancer because that would constitute a false and misleading statement. Uh that's not true. <laughs> and uh, at any rate, the um, the uh, the company bears bears trying to make the litigation go away, and it may go away for a number of the claims, but it it certainly isn't going to go away for all of them. It's a classic failure to warn claim. They have a uh, product that is probably carcinogenic, and that uh, they did not warn. Still don't warn. They still don't warn about this. And this is what's so interesting. Most companies follow this model. They they don't tell you uh, about the cases. A lot of this stuff you and I don't even hear about because of a three-letter word, uh, three letters, NDA, non-disclosure agreement. The most classic example, or I guess egregious example, I point out in my book was the McDonald's hot coffee lawsuit back in 1992 by a wonderful old woman, an eight-year-old woman named Stella Liebick, who in Albuquerque, New Mexico, her grandson drove her in his pickup truck through a McDonald's drive-in to pick up a cup of coffee. She asks her grandson to pull over into the parking lot. She had a little shaky hand if she could put cream and sugar in. So he pulls over, shuts the engine off, and the reason all these facts are important is the comedians made it seem like the grandson gunned the, tr the, tr the car, the uh, truck, and the coffee went flying. None of that happened. 
And, and while the car's engine was off, she has Parkinson's and she spills the coffee, scalds herself, third-degree burns, and McDonald's refused to pay. She sues, and they finally, uh, she won a judgment against McDonald's. Everybody laughed at her and said it's the classic case of stupid lawsuit, a ridiculous lawsuit. Turns out, Ralph Nader, I'll give total credit to, he's the one who told me this, turns out Stella Liebig in 1991 was not the first Stella Liebig. There were over a hundred before her, and nobody knew about it. McDonald's, it turns out, had juiced its temperature for coffee 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Everybody else was doing around 100. Why'd they juice it? Shakespeare said, hoisted by your own petard. McDonald's did research. Actually, we, my company, a research company, we did pile of research, I'm ashamed to say, where we found out that the customers at McDonald's wanted the coffee hot when they went through the drive-in, and they still wanted it hot when they got to work. So McDonald's did the average calculations, you know, the average length of commuting time, and they determined it would have to go to 130 degrees to satisfy most of their customers. Slight problem. They didn't tell anybody. In other words, no warning, no principal disclosure. Stella Liebig didn't know about it. Neither did apparently a hundred other women who also got scalded. And neither did the rest of us. Because McDonald's had them all sign an NDA, non-disclosure agreement. They're supposed to have told the Consumer Product Safety Commission, who regulates McDonald's. McDonald's never told them. And none of the people who were burned before Stella got burned told them because they signed an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. That means they took a little bit of money and the lawsuit went away. And to this very day, Jim, I'm holding a McDonald's cup right in front of me right now. You can't see it, but I've got it in my hand. There is no warning on the cup. It simply says, caution, coffee, hot. And by the way, it's a yellow print on a white background. <laughs> <laughs> you, I defy you. If I didn't know what I was looking for, but I knew exactly what I was looking for. I, I'm sorry, I said it's, or, it's an orange, orangey yellow background with white print where you can't even see it. And all it says is caution hot on there. And that's A, not a warning. B, it's hiding in plain sight. And B, or C, I guess we are because you kind of went to B there. It isn't true because I got a milkshake in one of those cups the other day. <laughs> well, to this day, McDonald's hasn't put a warning on it. And since Stella in 91, hundreds of women have been scalded, mostly women, because they apparently are in the driver's seat when the cars are pulling away. But the point I'm making is corporations are wed to an NDA. They have determined that it's cheaper in their best interest to settle the cases and make them go away and not tell anybody about it and then continue to make their dangerous products. And I say danger not because I want people to stop drinking McDonald's coffee. I'm not saying that. I'm saying go ahead and drink all you want. But just be aware that it's 130 degrees Fahrenheit and not 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That At 130 degrees, anybody will get third-degree burns. Anybody. That's just science. And so... I don't mind that it's at 130 degrees. I don't drink coffee, but if I did, just tell me, and I'll be extra careful. Maybe I won't uh, uh, take the lid off while the car's in motion. Maybe I'll be extra certain there's a tape around it so that the cup is sealed. Maybe I'll be sure. I'm not telling you you have to wear asbestos gloves. That's another story. What I'm saying is be aware. Have a warning on it. 
if you are convinced that you've got a good product that can sustain knowledge of the risk, then by all means, why are you afraid? Now, here's the good news for corporations. I'm not out to put you in, in, in the hoodwink. I'm not out to put you out of business. I'm not out to jail you. My book's called Murder, Inc., but I don't want you to go to jail. I want you to change and engage in a good thing called principal disclosure. Tell the truth. And guess what? It's in your financial interest. We did some math. $1.3 trillion. Jim, $1.3 trillion is spent every year by corporations to litigate lawsuits that have failure to warn claims in them, which is virtually every liability lawsuit in the United States has a failure to warn claim, meaning your company made a product that was dangerous and you didn't tell us about it. That's called a failure to warn claim. Virtually every product's liability lawsuit in the country has that claim in it. And guess what? If you tell the truth and if you put a good warning on the product, I can't guarantee you won't get sued. But I can sure say that the probability is high you won't. And if you do, you'll probably win it because the plaintiff's lawyers aren't stupid. I know them. I work with many of them, the best in the country. They are not going to sue you if they don't think they can get a payday. And they're not going to sue you if you've got a good warning on your product telling people what the risks are because they won't allow those kinds of claims to go forward because they have to spend money. This is the business of this thing. They have to spend money to sue you as a corporation. And they're going to give up if you have a good warning. That eliminates their one of their two claims. The other claim would be you made a bad product. Well, we make mostly good products today. So defective products isn't a big deal anymore, or not as big as it used to be. The big claim today is it's a good product, but it has some risks in it, and you didn't warn us about the risks. So if you tell the truth, principal disclosure, you'll save a trillion dollars a year in litigation costs. So is there a product out there, because I know we've been banging hard on the, the bad side of things, but is there a product or a group of products that does well coming out and telling us what you're, you know, just telling the truth and all that other stuff? Oh, there's some terrific examples out there. Uh, for one, Ream Water Heater Company. I like that company. They're not only a client. I feel like the here guy. You know, not only am I a client, <laughs> but the uh, Ream is located not far from my offices in Manhattan there in the Chrysler building. Ream discovered years ago that they had a pilot light that was exposed. Most water heaters have pilot lights at the bottom of the heater, and the pilot light was exposed. And where do people put water heaters? A lot of them were stored in garages. Well, what else is stored in garages? Uh, gasoline, extra fuel tanks, lawnmowers, stuff like that, where the gas fumes are heavier than oxygen, so they actually fall in the air to the ground and gravitate toward, guess what? the flame from the pilot light, causing boom, explosions, fires, and so on. Ream recognized that. They called me up, and uh, we put a strong warning and engaged in a communication campaign to tell the users of their water heaters until they fixed it. Eventually, the industry changed the design of the heaters to eliminate the hazard of the exposed pilot light. But until then, they did the right thing. They told people. Another great example Back in the 90s, uh, the Rely tampon made by Procter & Gamble was taken off the market because of toxic shock syndrome. 
which affected menstruating women who were using high-absorbent tampons. They didn't know about it. They weren't warned. Enter Playtex. They called me up. I worked with the government on this, and we put some good warnings on. We even made the company get this. Uh, Many companies look at me like I'm the Grinch who stole their Christmas bonuses. That's the marketing guy. He looks at me walking in and he says, oh, God, there go my sales bonuses. Goldhaber's here. And I say, wait a minute. Playtex had a, a box of tampons that you could open at the top or the bottom. And I wanted to put a warning in inside and seal it across the top. So what I had to do is make them seal the bottom. In order to seal the bottom of the box and meet, and make women only open from the top, where my warning was, they had to put in a whole bunch of new expensive, very expensive equipment to redesign their box and create a sealed bottom box. They did it. They did it without questioning. Their, their lawyer, I'll even give him credit, Joel Coleman from Stanford, from Playtex, he, he said, well, we're going to do the right thing, period, full stop. And they did it. They spent a fortune on new equipment so they could redesign their packaging just so that the warnings guy, me, could be happy. And they put the warning on the top, on the box, and inside the product so you could only get at it. Before you even used one tampon, you had to see my warning that folded across the product. So there's a couple of great examples. I could go on. Soft drink industry had a problem. Bottles would, uh, we won't say explode, but the caps would blow off. Wait, 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 wait. You're the guy on the lid of the Dr. Pepper that said don't open facing towards your eye? That's it. I'm the guy. No shit. I'm, I'm the guy. That was my warning, that, uh, and they fixed the problem eventually. But until they fixed it, women, men, boys, girls, children, older people were having their... They'd walk down the supermarket aisles, and bottles would pop. They'd pull it out, or kids would you know, shake it up and down, and the cap would explode. Many people, I'm talking hundreds of people, were going blind in one eye because of what I called the exploding bottle cap or the cap that would blow off. I went to Coke, Pepsi. I was working with the CPSC as their consultant on warnings. That's the Consumer Product Safety Commission. They happen to regulate the soft drink industry as far as warnings and so on. So I went there, and Coke and Pepsi cynically said, no thanks, we're not going to warn. We own two-thirds to three-fourths of the market. We'll just raise the price of our products by a half a cent, and that'll cover our litigation costs. Uh, Dr. Pepper, 7-Up, that was Cadbury Beverages. They bought them out. They owned A&W Root Beer in Canada, Dry, and all the rest of the con- companies, the rest of the brands. That was about a fourth of the market. They agreed to do it. They put the warnings on. And uh, the lawsuits disappeared because the problem disappeared. Once you, and this wasn't a radical idea, Jim. Every champagne bottle imported into the United States by federal law has that same warning on it that the cap could blow off. So all I said was, if the same problem occurs with the soft drink, the problem occurred. Don't get technical. It was the cap wasn't seating correctly because Alcoa made the aluminum caps and they weren't seating correctly. And under pressure from the carbon dioxide in the uh, beverages, the caps were blowing off under the right conditions. So they changed the design, fixed the cap problem, the issue went away, and the need for the warning then disappeared. But until they fixed the design problem, they had to put a warning on. 
I was going to say, I remember that on some plastic bottles, even, though. I couldn't hear you. What? I remember that on some plastic bottles, though, like from when I was a kid. These were only on the plastic bottles. Now, the glass ones had a separate problem. The glass could blow up also. Mostly the Uh, issue was on the two-liter plastic bottles. Okay. Anyways, well, enough about that because we're running out of time, and I'm going to make sure we got... I, we've talked around the book, but I want to give you that opportunity to promote yourself, your websites, your social media, all that fun stuff before we run out of time. Well, the book is available wherever you get your books. It's running up the charts on Amazon. Last I looked, it was 15 on the uh, Amazon bestseller list in the uh, category I'm in, which is consumer products and consumer advocacy and so on. So you can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Murder, Inc. by Jerry is the website, Murder, Inc. by Jerry. I've got a new podcast called The Warnings Doctor, and I get a lot of COVID uh, big-time guest doctors on and government people and people like Gloria Allred and others are guests booked in the future. I've got a good podcast called The Warnings Doctor. I'm on YouTube channel. We do visuals every week called Jerry on YouTube, Jerry on YouTube.com, Murder Inc. by Jerry.com. So <laughs> you can find me. The book is available wherever you get your books, and the podcast is wherever you get your podcasts. Man, I, I appreciate you wholeheartedly. We didn't even get into the COVID thing. That's a whole other can of worms, I'm sure, for another day. I'm sure you, you probably already started on that book. The COVID story, I've been asked by Forbes to mean, uh, well, I shouldn't say it yet. Let's say I'm, I'm talking with them about possibly being a columnist on this. And I believe that this is the greatest, and this will be for another time, Jim. I'd love to talk to you about the COVID story is the biggest warning story in my lifetime. Uh, it's the biggest, the best. It's got the good news and the bad news. The good news was that for the on a good day, twenty twenty five percent of Americans will follow a warning. On a good day, most people ignore warnings of any kind, even if you do a great job in telling the truth. Most people ignore it. Now that's a cynical way to tell a corporation, "Hey, you got nothing to lose." I want that. Don't go listen <laughs> to me. I want you to do it because it's the right thing to do, and you'll save a trillion dollars. But with COVID. All of a sudden, we see 75 to 85 percent of America was socially distancing and wearing masks. That is until the current administration decided to downplay all those things. I don't want to get political, but it's becoming a tragedy. And as the warnings doctor, I think it's outrageous that uh, certain weak political leaders in this country are putting their profits, in this case economic uh, benefits, over our safety profit over safety when you don't have to i don't want to say profit over safety. it's profit and safety we can have both if we do it right and thus the warning story of my lifetime is the covid 19 it's got everything in it we haven't even touched on why the uh, people of color are being adversely affected we mentioned it earlier but uh, that's a part of this so systemic racism ties right in to the warning story and why are people now suddenly not following the warnings of the science and the doctors? Yeah, There's a lot to talk about here. A lot to unwrap. As I say, we, we have a minute left, so I don't think we're going to get there tonight. Not really. <laughs> it's too big a story. So when, whenever you do get that road up or whatever, however that's going to go, uh, be sure to get it through and I'll get you back on it. We'll get, we'll, we got to spend more time on that. You bet. So, Jerry, hey, it's been a blast tonight. Um, kind of running the gamut of all sorts of medical automotive, just opening eyes to all of the potential. 
I'm going to encourage my my listeners to go out and pick up the book. It's a it's a book. It's a nice sized book, and it, it's full of data and information. It's not a light read by any stretch, but it's worth picking up and reading. So I appreciate well, I've, you been, I've been told it's pretty good. I tell stories as a good writer. It's my eleventh book now. I've been told the only way you can write a good book is to tell stories. So I've tried to tell as many stories as I can about real people and how these things affect our lives. And you know, if you're a book reader in hardback and you want to keep it around and pass it along, that's fine. Well for ten bucks you can get it on Kindle. How how big a deal is that? <laughs> That's good. Okay. Hey, have a good night, my friend. Talk to you soon. Nice talking to you, Jim. You take care. And that's uh, Jerry Goldblum, or Gold Goldhaber, excuse me. I was reading it upside down. I shouldn't do that. 30 seconds left in the program. Before we forget, I've got to send you over to Mallard.com and sign up for your favorite podcast app, whichever it may be, wherever you may be listening. I appreciate you immensely. If it's live Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern on the Duck Pond, I appreciate you. If it's... Uh, Thursday morning, where in the, wherever in the world you're listening, I appreciate you too. Uh, just be in touch, and we're going to continue this train down the tracks next week. I can promise you that. I don't know where we're going, but we're going somewhere fast. In a world infatuated with comic fandom comes a show to help us remember the talents that have inspired us. Whoa, 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 cut. Oh, uh, come on. It wasn't come that on. bad. It's a bit dramatic. Let's just tell them about the show, guys. We are the Canned Air Podcast. Join us weekly for a comedic trip through pop culture. We also welcome some cool comic creators, as well as some of the voice and screen actors that help shape your childhood. Find us on cannedairpodcast.com and on the Evergreen Podcast Network. 